Hello. Oh, it is recording. I see the little figure. Okay, great. I will do my little spiel and then I'll introduce you. Nice. Okay, here I go. Hi, I'm Sue from the Salveson Mindrum Research Centre at the University of Edinburgh, and I'm recording another episode of our podcast, Psychological, where I phone developmental psychologists around the UK to talk to them about some recent research they've done. We're just trying to make a contribution to the conversations a lot of us are having at the moment about child and adolescent well-being and development and learning and so on. And today's psychological is with Kirsty Ainsworth from the University of Glasgow. And Kirsty is going to talk to me about a recent paper looking at multisensory facilitation uh, across development in autism. Hi, Kirsty, how are you? I'm great, how are you? Really well, thank you. So glad to have you on the podcast. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. So, why don't you start by telling me, Kirsty, what you discovered when you did this piece of research? Sure. So what we found um, was a difference, basically, in the way that autistic children integrate auditory and visual information. This is also known as multisensory integration. And we found this to be consistent across age. So from younger years, so like age six, all the way through to adolescence up to age 18. Amazing. Um so let's think about that kind of integration of, of information. Can you tell me a bit more about what we mean by multisensory integration? Sure. So multisensory integration is um, our sort of perceptual ability to take, our, for example, visual information and auditory information at the same time. So let's say, for example, when you're, you're Skyping someone or on a Zoom call, you have both auditory and visual information. And what this usually does is it facilitates our sort of the, the ability for us to understand that person, the, the speed in which we can comprehend what they're saying is, is usually improved when we have both the visual and the auditory information. And unisensory would be just one of those things. So just the visual information or just the, auditory information so so we were watching Netflix the other day and there was obviously something wrong with our signal because the the audio was like lagging slightly behind what was happening on screen right so I guess that's an example of when when these two things don't match up and it becomes really hard to to understand what's going on is that right absolutely so it's something that we really take for granted and it's not until you're in those moments where something is just slightly off and it completely sort of messes with your head and you know this we're constantly processing multi-sensory integration all the time so when as soon as it is slightly out of sync it really does it really becomes obvious to us mm-hmm. and so why is this an interesting thing to be looking at in autistic people so atypical sensory processing you know it's something that's been uh, sort of anecdotally uh, characteristic of autism for a, a long time. So as far back as, you know, Canner's original descriptions of autism, sensory processing was in there. However, sort of sensory experiences have not really been included as like a core characteristic of autism until the most recent iteration of the diagnostic manual, so the DSM-5. So this means that really like, experimental research on sensory processing and autism is still relatively young. So it's something that is, you know, a lot of people in the autistic community 
are really aware of wanting to know more about sensory experiences, but it's only recently that we've began to study this experimentally. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's a lovely hook for me to go into asking about your methods, right? Because in my experience, and I've not really done research in this area, but a lot of it tends to be kind of questionnaire-based, which is very valuable for understanding the day-to-day experience of kind of the, the, the sensory experience for autistic people. Um, but did you do something more experimental then in this study? Yes, so this study uh, was actually conducted at McGill University in the PN lab. And what we did was we have sort of uh, experimental rooms, so a testing room, dimly lit, quiet, and we set up a a computer-based experiment. So this is a simple task that the participant has to do uh, in which they sort of respond to something that we present to them. And this is just sort of a basic experimental task. And we use something called the target detection task, which is an established multi-sensory integration task. Um, And so so this task involves basically participants sitting in their room, they've got a button in their hand, and they're asked to detect as fast as possible the stimulus that is presented to them. And then we present to them randomized trials, which are either auditory, so they get a beep in their ears, visual, which is a flash on the screen, or audio-visual, which is both the beep and the flash together. And their task is to press the button as fast as possible. And what, you know, previous research using this task and neurotypical participants, what we found is that we have a sort of, you know, there's an advantage when the stimulus is audio-visual. So just kind of like what you were saying about, um, you know, Netflix, like as, as soon as something becomes out of sync, it's, it's, it really messes with our head. So having this audio-visual condition often makes us faster at processing something, even if it's sort of um, subconscious that we're actually not noticing that we're doing it. Mm-hmm. And I suppose in one sense that seems a bit counterintuitive because you've got two signals that you need to process. So you'd think if anything that would slow you down a bit. Um, but it's actually speeding us up, right? Absolutely. So that's exactly what we would expect that having, you know, we're having to process more information. So it's it's the addition of the audio and the visual. Surely that would take more processing time. But what we found is, well, in the neurotypical population anyway, is that often the audio, visual, the multisensory integration actually makes us faster mm-hmm. in a faster way. But but not for autistic people. Were they slowed down in that condition? Is that right? Yeah. So what we find is that um, so we did this thing called the race model um, type of analysis, and essentially this allows this sort of analysis that allows us to assess the performance on the audiovisual trials relative to the combined effect of just the audio and the visual alone, based on that individual's own performance. So we were able to see for our autistic participants, actually having the audiovisual stimulus, does that speed up your reaction? Is that actually giving you added value that we find, you know, in previous research in the neurotypical literature? And what we find is that that's not the case. So having this sort of audiovisual stimulus does not seem to produce a faster reaction time compared to the combined effect of audio and visual on their own. 
And we found that consistently in children and also in adolescents, uh, autistic adolescents. Yeah, I was going to ask about the age range. So, um, so can you just tell me a bit more? And I assume th- these weren't the same kids when they'd grown up, right? These are different groups of young people. Yeah. It's just, um, we actually just did a kind of cross-sectional analysis. So we had 45 autistic participants and 110 neurotypical participants. And our age range was between 6 and 18 years old. Great. Um, so... So this is so this is beeps and flashes, right? Um, so, I mean, I, my feeling is that that adds a huge amount of value because it gives you kind of total control, right? Because in the real world, the sounds that we hear and the, the sights that we see, you know, are so variable and it's very hard to kind of capture them. Um, but I wonder, I suppose, if you wanted to kind of take the next step and go take a step towards something more... Um, like our day-to-day experience of the sensory environment, like what would you do next after this? So um, something that we are, are looking at is also including a social element to uh, the multisensory integration. So something including emotions, for example. So having auditory and visual information, does this improve emotion perception? Also something, again, a sort of established uh, paradigm is the McGurk effect. Previous research has found that um, autistic individuals are less susceptible to the McGurk illusion. So that's also something that we would be interested in looking at across age because we don't really know much about the sort of trajectory of that. Mm-hmm. And we kind of wanted to look at the real basics of it, so stripping everything away so that we have no kind of bias of social content or anything like that so that's really why we chose this task was to kind of go back into the very very simple and basic beeps and flashes as you say you know um how what what do we find with this process if we take away all of that information and then hopefully in the future we can then compare that to performance when we add in more information so uh, social information or even things like uh, temporal information so at what point does, you know, when audio and visual information is out of sync, at what point does that become problematic? And is this different between autistic and, and neurotypical participants? Mm. It's so interesting, isn't it? And it, it's so important. It kind of takes me back to my PhD where, you know, the, the kind of um, one of the big conclusions I came to is that, you know, we're, we're treating social information Um, especially in experimental tasks, you know, social information is often just like one person, one person's face or whatever. And we're treating um, autistic people's processing of the information as if it tells us purely about some sort of social process, right? Interest in other people, motivation to interact with other people, that kind of thing. But actually, we're ignoring the fact that a lot of our social information is multisensory, you know, and you have to process the words that someone's saying, but also the tone of voice in which it's being delivered and the expression and the gestures and all of these kind of information channels are coming in. And so if that was hard to integrate, um, that, that would give you a huge disadvantage in the social world that's got nothing at all to do with how interested you are in other people for example but but is absolutely 
down to this kind of much more fundamental process, which, as you said, has been, you know, maybe not um, not captured in as much detail as it should have been up to this point. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's kind of one of the key aims of doing this type of research is, you know, if we can sort of strip back and look at these basic perceptual processes, what we hope is that we'll provide a platform for research looking at, you know, these cascading effects that might occur from these perceptual differences. So say, for example, if there is this real sort of difference in multisensory integration at a very young age, how much does that influence the development of learning, language, social communication? Is there a sort of cascading effect that this perceptual difference might have on you know, the development of these things later on? Mm-hmm. So interesting. Um, so I, I don't want to ask you to go out on too much of a limb because we have just established that the whole point here is to, to sort of strip away some of the complexity and the detail. But um, if you were making recommendations to people, maybe autistic people who are listening or parents with autistic kids or teachers, do you think there's anything that we can learn from this um, about the sort of sensory environment that we can act upon? It's quite a a difficult question for this. Um, I I guess I'm not really sure how to answer that. Um, I think that hopefully this will kind of um, influence future research that might be able to give us more sort of practical implications related to multisensory integration. Um, but I know there is sort of information out there related to sort of training in this area. For example, there's some really cool research with um, Jim Tanaka's lab at UVic, which is more related to the social nature of um, uh, sort of get, like combining auditory and visual information. Um, but I'm afraid sort of from this research, um, I, I can't sort of recommend, I guess, a specific thing for teachers and kids. But as I say, what I really hope is that this can provide a platform for those types of things to to sort of follow on from that. That's what I really hope. Yeah, absolutely. You're a very good scientist, Kirsty. You're refusing to go out on a limb. And we all wish that there were some more scientists who would be that restrained. But maybe, maybe we could say that we shouldn't underestimate the importance of the sensory domain for autistic people. I guess that's one thing, isn't it? Um, So before we finish, one very marvellous thing that has happened recently for you, which I personally am delighted about, is that you have come back to Scotland and you are a lecturer at the University of Glasgow, which is so fab. Um, So from that um, lofty position of um, (laughs) professional achievement, I wondered if you had any advice for kind of early career researchers, PhD students who are following a bit in your footsteps. Well, thank you so much. That's so kind of you. Um, and yeah, I have been extremely lucky that I was able to go abroad. You know, I did my postdoc um, at McGill University in Montreal. Um, and I, I think, honestly, for me, something that that really benefited me is that collaboration. So reaching out to other um, academics in different settings, different places in the world, and trying to physically visit those places if possible, is something that has really shaped me as a researcher, you know, not just like learning about how different labs and teaching works abroad, but also just absorbing cultures and 
being exposed to different points of view. So for me, um, and maybe this is kind of not the best advice during like a global pandemic, but I think what I'm trying to say is just reaching out and trying to sort of extend your network as much as possible is something that really I'm so grateful for that, um, you know, that I've had the opportunities to do that through, throughout the past few years. Um, and something else would also just be to seek out those opportunities related to, you know, university work or postgraduate work that is over and above just the academic side. So, for example, during my PhD, I was lucky to get all these really excellent trainings on things like public engagement or, um, you know, writing for a non-scientific audience, all of these things that we sort of almost take for granted a little bit, but are so useful and we're really lucky to have them. So I guess I would um, suggest really reaching out to those things that are not just kind of at your desk and getting, you know, the academic work done, which of course is really important, but branching out a little bit into those other areas is something that I really benefited from. Fab, thank you so much, Kirsty. Great advice. Um, especially the going to McGill part. I think specifically going to McGill is something we, you and I would both recommend. I spent a few weeks there um, the first year after my PhD, not very long, but it was just fab, right? So yeah, top tips post-pandemic. Um, so I think we need to wrap up there. We do try to, well, I keep calling this podcast Bite Size, but I, I get carried away and ask too many questions. Um, Thank you so much for your time. And for anyone who's listening, you'll be able to find out more about Kirsty's work, including a link to the paper that we discussed um, by looking at the podcast description on Buzzsprout or in your podcast app. Thank you so much, Kirsty. Thanks so much for having me. Bye. Bye. Okay, we did it. I thought that went quite smoothly. <laughs>